Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm here to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter and to share stories of interesting and insightful women who may just inspire you in your current chapter. This week, I'm speaking with Absinthia Vermouth. Absinthia's love for art history and unusual parties led her to an event in 1996 where she tried absinthe illegally for the first time. Fast forward to the legalization of absinthe in the U.S., and Absinthia is channeling her passion for the notorious Green Fairy into making award-winning small-batch absinthe. But she's also doing things her own way and leading the charge among women in the alcohol business. I don't have a plan B. This is it, and that's intentional. I have an exit strategy, and I will achieve it, and there's no other option for me. And that's, I think, the best way to just keep going, to inspire myself to get up in the morning and do what I need to do. Hi, Cynthia. How are you doing? Hi, Kristen. I'm great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to the second chapter. Thank you. Happy to be here. Obviously, this name that you have is not your birth name. I say obviously, but I know that it's not, wasn't your birth name. So I was first called Absinthia back in 1997. I had discovered absinthe about four months earlier, got the recipe. And the first night I served my first bootleg bottles of absinthe, my friends started calling me Absinthia. (laughs) But it was a few years later when I realized that my last name, Vermouth, which is on my birth certificate. I was wondering about that. It's German for Wormwood, and that is actually my last name. Yeah. So <laughs> Absinthia Vermouth. I mean, it's the perfect name for an absinthe distiller. You know, Absinthia was given to me. I call it a gift from my friends, and Vermouth is on my birth certificate. I don't share this story very often, but I did have the nickname for a very short time in high school. Oh, I hope my mom's not listening. Um, Cisco. <laughs> So people were calling me the Cisco kid after I managed to go to a party, get my hands on a bottle of Cisco, which was this weird, I don't know, it seemed like a wine cooler, but wasn't, had a ridiculous amount of alcohol in it. Probably loaded with sugar too. Exactly. Uh, Got really drunk. And the next day or the next, whatever, however many days later at school, it was, hey, here comes Cisco, the Cisco kid. (laughs) So we both have alcohol related nicknames. (laughs) Yes. Fortunately, that is not my nickname anymore. (laughs) You mentioned your mom. Absinthia is technically legally my middle name. I never use my first name unless I'm talking to my bank, but I did that so that I wouldn't upset my mother. (laughs) Fair enough. I feel like parents give you a name for a reason and they like it anyway. So the idea of changing your name, it's probably a little tough on parents sometimes. I would imagine. Before you started bootlegging absinthe, you were studying photography and art history. That's correct, at New York University. What led you to that area of studies? I have a very early memory of sitting on the floor of the family room, going through the our old photo albums. I guess they weren't old at that time. I was very young, but going through the photo albums and being fascinated by the color negatives and just looking more at the negatives and how they worked and what they looked like than the photos themselves. And by the time I was eight, I was working in the darkroom at a summer camp and I was just hooked. I was not the most 
socially confident kid. I'd say I was a little shy. And working in the dark room and creating magic just, it made me happy and it helped me with that social anxiety. I could just be on my own in the dark and create magic. And I just continued doing it. When I was in college studying photography, I discovered color darkroom printing, which was my first career. And then, of course, the art history, they were actually started as requirements for my photography degree. And I just fell in love with it. And when I discovered absinthe a few years after I graduated, it was the art history that really drew me into absinthe. Yeah, I know um, reading a bit about you that it was love of art history that took you to this party where you discovered it. But it's funny because you mentioned the social anxiety and everything. And I feel like so many creative kids, art school kids, if you will, I was an art school kid myself. I don't know, like this social anxiety maybe growing up, but then it became, I'm thinking of this party because I was reading about the society that you went to this party with. And it just was like a flip as you grew up. Like suddenly the creative artsy people were the ones throwing the cool parties. And it were just interesting people. Absolutely. I, I came out of my shell when I was older. And I every once in a while, of course, I still have a little social anxiety, especially after three years of pandemic at home. Tell me about it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but my favorite part of my job is going to events, talking to people about my product, about absinthe, about their cocktails and the Burning Man community and art and all of it. Yeah. So what started as that shy little kid has, just like you said, just blossomed into this love of parties and people and events. So tell me about that party a little bit. Yeah, San Francisco Coffining Society, a group of artists. I believe it started in Los Angeles. In San Francisco, we, we would just do weird things. Like that party where I discovered absinthe was a Proust weight. And there was a cake of the body of Proust and poetry readings and absinthe. And it was just wild. Reading some of their other events, and you mentioned Burning Man, kind of stemmed out of the same people and just some of the craziest events. It takes a real creative mind and wanting to do wild, unusual things to have events like this, I imagine. Yes. And moving from New York to San Francisco was really that discovery for me because New York is such a bustling city. I think it's hard to do smaller artsy groups like this. San Francisco Cacophony Society was really just just out there and doing doing weird stuff. And there, in fact, the group that brought Burning Man from Baker Beach to the Nevada desert. So at this point, absinthe is illegal. For about 85 years. Yeah, which I mean, is crazy. Of course, there's this whole myth and urban legend around absinthe. You put a lot of those myths to bed on your website, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Knowing just you said something about getting a recipe for absinthe, but based on what I've read, it was not a the way you started when you were bootlegging it. It was not necessarily what we know as your absinthe today. (laughs) Oh, it's very different. It was very different. But it wasn't all we knew. There was very little internet to discover. Everything was in Europe and different languages. And I got this recipe. I was told it was from a family in the French countryside. How did I know any more than that? And what was this recipe? I have to know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. The recipe was Everclear, tinctures of wormwood and anise and some food coloring. 
<laughs> and for anyone who's unaware of Everclear, uh, just a really high alcohol content, yeah. no taste, no nothing alcohol. Right. Exactly. Just very high proof, great alcohol. After a while, I had a friend up in Northern California growing my herbs for me organically. I was getting distilled spirit. So it was still not what we'd consider a true absinthe because it wasn't distilled yet. But I was using distilled spirits that were organic. I was using herbs that were organic. So I was doing the best that I could at the time. Definitely a far step from Everclear and food coloring. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so as all this is happening and you're bootlegging absinthe and obviously enjoying it enough to have received the nickname, what else is going on in your life? So I first had absinthe at that party in November of 96. I love the date that I got my nickname. It was April Fool's Day, 1997. That was yet another Cacophony Society party in Port Costa, California, at this ancient hotel that was apparently had the real names were named after old prostitutes. And there was a place across the street, a restaurant. It was just wild. From there, I was working as a color darker printer and I got into marketing and started project managing large websites, which eventually led into social media. I got married in 2000. By 2005, I had my, both my daughters. And then absence became legal in 2007. I had no idea that it would ever become legal in my lifetime or what to do once it did. And so it took a few years to figure out. Um, I got divorced in 2012 and launched the business in 2013, launched a syrups business with a friend of mine in 2015. And in 2016, my partner died. And four months later, I started getting my MBA. It was a two-year program. And I was at that time a single mom with two kids, two businesses. And it was considered a part-time MBA program, but it was not. Life was a little crazy. The timing of being that busy was really good after the love of my life had died. Yes. But yeah, it was not an easy time at, at all. But I had my eye on the prize. I knew what I wanted to do. I was not getting this degree because I wanted to go get a job at Google. I wanted to run a very successful business. I interviewed someone from in the Welsh Wind, which is a beautiful Welsh gin. And she had what I think is similar to some of your experiences, being a woman in you know, the alcohol business. It is definitely mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. quite the boys club. It sure is. I am currently in an organization called the Women's Cocktail Collective, which is, I'm so proud to be a part of it. And I'm so happy it just exists because we are, we're a new breed. We're probably, there's a few of us that are a little older than me that have been in the business a little bit longer than me, but we're all really still part of that first, first wave of women distillers. And it's interesting because it gets me a lot of press. I recently won a best woman distiller award from Sunset Magazine, which of course raises the question, do we need a best woman distiller award? Or do we just need a Best Distiller Award? I've gotten pushback throughout my time as a producer and podcaster. Why are you only telling the stories of women? 
do we need to just tell the stories of women? Unfortunately, we still do. We still do. As I'm sure that you feel the same way, it'd be nice to someday just be best distiller. I can just have a podcast where or a production where I don't have to worry about putting women center stage because they're already there. Yep. Yep. Sorry, I interrupted that story, but I just had to stand on my soapbox for one minute. (laughs) No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. It is something that needs to happen. And we're still at a place where we need to point out those differences. I think I think the goal of not having to do that is not only gender based. I think it's also race. And let's expand it beyond just women. Right. Mm-hmm. Trans people, LGBTQ and so on. It, we all still need a little leg up. Yes. If we're not a white man. Yes, Absolutely. You were talking about the cocktail group and the boys club. Yes. I was not being treated like a businesswoman. And I knew that I had a degree in the arts and I did not have a lot of experience running a business. But the way I was treated, I knew I had to do something about it. And when I say the way I was treated, I would go to a meeting, my my male business partner in the syrups business. and. One meeting in particular, he got a text after the meeting. Great meeting. So nice to meet the little lady. Everyone assumed I was his wife. And what year was this? Just for clarity. <laughs> that would have been 2017, I believe. Yeah, so five, six years ago. Great. Yeah, not the <laughs> long ago. Everybody thought I was his wife. It drove him crazy, too, because he was like, I'm not the businessman. I am the former bartender who created these great syrups. She's the business person. She's the one launching an absent business, then getting my MBA. But people just wanted to talk to him. He and I had a meeting at a hotel in San Francisco about the syrups. And after the meeting, I pulled the general manager aside and said, I'm launching this other business and I make these organic absents and they're delicious. And he said, oh, you're launching a business. Like he was going to pat me on my freaking head. And you just think like how many women have started businesses? And obviously it does have to do with the type of business as part of it as well. But come on, aren't we past that? We're not. I was very young, but I was alive when women could not put a business. They could not get a business loan. They could not put business in their own name. I think they couldn't get a credit card in their own name. Roe v. Wade hadn't passed yet. Now we're on the other side of that. So, yes, it's it's two steps, one step forward, two steps back most of the time. I think a little bit, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we'll keep we'll keep pushing. Exactly, exactly. So, do you feel that having your MBA just gave you the confidence that maybe you wouldn't have had to say, "Hey, I I know what I'm doing." It wasn't just about art school anymore. Hundred percent. Yes. I also include MBA on my signature and my emails. I put it on my business card, like an Esquire. (laughs) I put MBA on there so that people know I've got the education and know what I'm doing. I have to. You did the hard work as well. Let people know about it. Damn right. On your forehead. So less pleasantly, but you mentioned also the love of your life dying as this is all kicking off. You have two teenage girls. How do you think that 
yes, it's great to be busy when you you, know, you need something else in your life. But how do you think that influenced everything that was happening? That's a very broad question. Yeah, obviously, I was grieving very hard. I gave myself, he passed July 4th weekends and grad school started in October. So I had that time to just sit on the couch with my friends and grieve. And then I just picked my ass up and just went for it. At the time, I was also uh, practicing Muay Thai, which is Thai kickboxing. And that was really a fantastic outlet as, as well. I would spend an hour just sweating it out, punching the bags and kicking the bags and walk out feeling like I've been meditating for the last hour. And so I think I exercised more when I was that busy than I ever have in my life just to keep my brain sane. But it was hard. It was hard. I have to say, not to compare the two at all, but when I was going through a difficult divorce, the amount of boxing and kickboxing and a really aggressive, I think there's definitely that anger element that is part of grief, that getting it out through something physical is just, I feel like I, I owe my sanity or what's left of it. Yeah, to, to yeah. all of that physical activity, for sure. And there were also days where I was working on both businesses all day long. I had dinner with my kids. I had a project due at midnight with a few classmates. And by five o'clock at night, my brain was just spinning. And I'd duck out for a workout and come back and be able to finish the day, get through until midnight. And we submitted the assignment and I was able to get five or six hours of sleep after that. So I also love, I think there's something really interesting that people don't always take into account when we have these second chapters, we come across or we come into something that's our next career, even though yours was going on for a long time before it was your actual career, mm -hmm. your actual business. But sometimes it's discounted how much our life experience influences and helps with what we're doing next. So even though you went back and got your MBA, I know that your art background definitely influenced sort of the look and the vibe and the feel of what Absinthia is. Oh, absolutely. It is my biggest creative project. Yeah. I put a lot of my creativity into it. And we had discussed earlier that I'm working podcast myself. And the research of that has been absolutely amazing researching the history of the absinthe, the art history of the absinthe. I just love it. And it is, absinthe is a period of art history in and of itself. And I'd say my business requires a lot of both sides of my brain, my creativity and my yeah, business Yeah, I think side. the best businesses usually do. Yeah. And what I find interesting is that my mother's side of the family is all very creative, very artistic. And my father's side is very businessy. So I feel like in some way I have taken both sides and just meshed them together. And I don't know, I kind of love after my name or in my bios, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts and an MBA. Like, who has that? That's just got to be pretty unusual. I don't know. I like that. Yeah. When I went to design school for fashion and I am definitely more of the sort of combined mind, because even though I think of myself as a creative, I'm definitely more toward the logical brain, I guess, side of creative, or I like that combining of business. So I remember taking some marketing classes and actually like the business majors would get so annoyed when I would do better on a test or something because I was like <laughs> the weird fashion girl. But yet I also was like, oh, no, I really, 
none of my fashion friends were like, yay, marketing. But I was, oh, this is interesting. Oh, I love that. I love marketing. It's fascinating. It's creative. It's interesting. It's challenging. All of it. I think, yeah, like you said, in business school, you have the people who do well in marketing. You have the people who do well in the finance classes. Mm -hmm. So I will, I'll never be an accountant. I'll never be an economist. (laughs) One of my favorite classes actually was my contract. For a moment, I was like, I should go into alcohol law. And then I was like, girl, you are not going back to school. (laughs) What are you talking about? Not for alcohol law. I think you would have found that it was like, oh, that was an interesting class, but I don't need to do this full time. Yes, but the hourly rate is incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should have been an accountant. Oh, God, that would not have been good. <laughs> I bring it up, too, because you have this beautiful bottle. Like Just seeing the bottle, whether whatever's inside of it, I want it because it's beautiful. Thank you. I actually, the artist who created that was introduced to me by a friend of mine. And she had a bottle, a label in the San Francisco MoMA's wine label art exhibit, which, of course, I raced there practically the day that exhibit opens and when i was introduced to kate i was like oh my god you were in that exhibit that exhibit just absolutely blew my mind she after she designed everything she went and got a full-time job and legally was not allowed to work with me but i have another designer who's absolutely incredible that i love working with and i love that she was able to take another artist's existing concept and run with it and not be like, I need to do my, no, she's just been fantastic working with a, 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 a design that that already exists. I am not the kind of artist where I can draw the beautiful wormwood that's on the side of the label, but I know what I want and I know mm-hmm. how to communicate with artists about what I want. And so that relationship tends to be a pretty easy one with pretty good communications. We talked about the boys club thing, but one of the other not so easy things was actually finding someone to distill the absinthe because nobody had done it for over 85 years. That's right. (laughs) Recipes were found from the 1800s and some of it was confusing. Some of those terms in distilling aren't used anymore. Didn't really know what they meant. Ingredients were hard to find. And I am currently transitioning from my second to my third distiller. Okay. (laughs) Easy breezy. No troubles in the alcohol business. Oh, gosh. (laughs) It is a very hard business. It is a really challenging business. There's a lot of moving parts. It's really designed for big established businesses. You have distribution nationwide. You launch a product. You throw a bunch of money at it and you're all set. I'm bootstrapped. I've had a, I've not been successful. I'd say finding financing, finding investors interested in business. I can win awards and I can get press, but I cannot get cash. I cannot get investors yet. I don't want to say yes, cannot. I, like I have, yet. let me change that. I have not yet found investors. I'm a woman in booze. I'm not a man in tech. It's hard. So back to the distillers. What I look for in a distiller, my first distiller had a biodynamic organic farm 
woman-owned, and she made her own, she made a few of her own recipes. And I just, we met and we talked and we looked over the vintage recipes and we just figured out, here's how you do it, trial and error. And she and I together came up with the Absinthe Blanche, which has won a lot of awards. It's the product that turned me from an absent bootlegger to an award-winning absinthe thor. And there are so many shields and crests and like the number of awards on your website. It's just like a page of it that you can scroll down. Yeah, I'm really proud of that. But I, I see it as my absence have won the awards, right? It's not, I didn't win Best Actress, right? I won, my, my, my products have won these awards. And that's just how I look at it. Unfortunately, with that first distiller, she got, she was just too busy running the farm and her CSA and she was far away. It was about a two and a half hour drive. So I switched distillers who is now due to health issues, resigning, selling his business. So we're in transition there, but I know that I'm in good hands and he's not going to leave me without, he's not going to leave me without a distiller to create products. But he is an award-winning gin maker. Mm -hmm. And I knew that anyone who could make gin really well can make absinthe really well. They're very similar. They are distilled spirits with botanicals, just different botanicals. And for people that haven't had absinthe, and my recollection of it is very old (laughs) and probably not that good, really, what I was drinking. What is absinthe? What is the taste? What is it? What is it like? Particularly yours. The definition of absinthe is a distilled spirit without sugar or food coloring or artificial anything. Just a distilled spirit with a trinity of herbs. And those herbs are wormwood, anise, and fennel. And that's the basic requirement. And from there, you can do whatever you want as long as you follow those rules. So the absinthe blanche is distilled biodynamic grapes. And I use the grapes because they have this natural sweetness. And Mm. I really believe that the tradition of putting sugar in your absinthe, I just believe that a well-crafted absinthe should not need sugar to taste good. And I know like we were talking about earlier about your your wine cooler (laughs) and that, that crazy night. Sugar is what makes you crazy and hungover. Yeah. So I really wanted to create an absinthe that did not need sugar. We start with the grapes and then we use wormwood, anise, fennel, and a little coriander. So that's a vintage, that's about two or three vintage Swiss recipes that we've combined. Oh, and I love Um, coriander. So that sounds delicious. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's definitely, you can definitely taste it. So the taste of absinthe is often described as licorice. And when people think of licorice, they think of those disgusting candies they had when they were kids. Some people love licorice, right? Not me. Mm. Black licorice is, no, it's a different plant. It's not even related. It's a cheap version of what we're doing. So I tell people to think instead of a fresh fennel salad. Which is delicious. Mm. And the absents are, they're just that. They're refreshing. They're surprisingly delicious. There's no hitch over the head with the anise. They are much more smoother and more subtle than a lot of absence out there. 
And I know you talk about having like a hundred recipes that you can mix them with and you have the line of syrups and everything. So they're not just, I don't know, I saw your TikTok, which I know your teenage daughters are not happy about, (laughs) but I saw you mixing just with the water and it was just like that. But there's also cocktails as an option. Yeah. And that's something that I'm really working on right now. So in 2009, Wine Spectator published an article about absinthe, which had been barely legal for two years at that point. And they said Americans are not going to come to absinthe through the louche. And the louche is the absinthe with cold water. The cold water opens up the botanicals. It causes that that cloudiness, that beautiful Mm -hmm. cloudiness. They're going to come to absinthe through the cocktail. And so what I'm working on right now is a campaign around Elevate Your Cocktail so that people understand you don't have to just buy my bottle of absinthe and drink it with cold water. You can use it to make better cocktails. So I go to events and I ask people, "What, Kristen, what type of booze do you like to drink? I like whiskey. You like whiskey? Yes, I do. Have you ever had a Sazerac? Yes, I have. I love Sazerac. This is not a commercial. Right. This is actually true. <laughs> that, 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 I feel like I'm saying in the voice and people are going to be like, did they prepare this? So we did not prepare this. But these are the conversations that I have at events so that people understand, oh, that Sazerac would not work without that rinse of absinthe in the glass. So absinthe helps you make better cocktails. It is an unusual spirit in that it's used on its own And as a modifier, like a bitters or even a mixer in a cocktail. And it's very obvious why you have your nickname, because you clearly know everything about it (laughs) and love it. I I do. (laughs) It's yeah, I could bore my friends all day long talking about absinthe. (laughs) So I know for a lot of small businesses, but especially something like a consumer product, COVID caused a lot of pivoting. And I know that you kind of had to change a bit about how you were selling your absinthe at that point, which for a fairly new business was not ideal. We started selling the syrups in, I believe it was 2015. And the first absinthe sale was in 2017. And then, of course, March 2020, everything shut down. And I pivoted I figured out how to sell alcohol online, which was really not even legal until that point. It was just not done. It was not understood. Everybody was buying everything online except for booze. So the industry quickly shifted. 2020 actually ended up being my most successful year in business. Interesting. I think a lot of people were home drinking, to be fair. That's exactly right. People were home drinking and Apple had not yet ruined the algorithm on Facebook advertising. Oh, it's terrible. Don't even get me started. (laughs) Oh, God, it's terrible. And people were, they were home making cocktails. They were baking sourdough bread. And it was a fantastic time for the business. And then Facebook advertising just completely changed and stopped working. But in January of 2022, I had more wholesale revenue than I'd had in the last two years combined. And so a year ago, about a year and a half ago, I quickly pivoted back to wholesale, stopped focusing on e-commerce and grew my distribution, started traveling again and just growing the business through getting into 
hotels, restaurants, bars, bottle shops, rather than selling to consumers directly online. I'm still doing that and it's still great, but my focus is more on the distribution and the wholesale. And I think that you also are getting a lot of word of mouth kind of sales. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Word of mouth kind of sales. Just because I do a lot of events, I go out. I was in New York a few weeks ago and did some meet and greets with my reps. Had an amazing time at my friend Don Spiro's monthly absinthe party called The Green Fairy that he's been doing for seven years without break. They went online during the pandemic. Working on creating a Green Fairy West party here in the Bay Area. Been to New Orleans, Tales of the Cocktail, and just the more I get out, the more I get away from this laptop and get out and meet and greet people, the better it is. People need to taste the product. Yes. Or they'll just walk past it on the shelf. That makes perfect sense because it's not a huge market in the absinthe world, but the booze market's big. You know, you see a bunch of bottles. Oh, I'm just going to reach for the one I know. Or fortunately, you have at least the prettiest, the prettiest bottle. Yes, but the absinthe tends to be, there's a liquor store near me where they put the absinthe on top of the door that leads to their back office. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not at eye level. You can't see it. You can't reach it. I'm like, oh. And they tell me that absinthe is not a popular spirit. And I'm like, you don't promote it. You don't give it a fair shot. There's wine tastings, there's cocktail tastings, but if you don't put absinthe in something or say, we have this cocktail that you probably never tried, it's absinthe, then people would be like, oh, yeah, it's trendy now, whatever. Exactly, exactly. Then people still believe the stuff that, that, and this just blows my mind, people still believe what was told about absinthe by the French wine industry that didn't want to compete with it 125 years ago. Most of us question things that our parents say. Why aren't we questioning anti-absent propaganda from the late 1800s? Yeah, you mentioned the Green Fairy. The Green Fairy, it's known for creating hallucinations and all these kind of stories about absinthe, about how you were going to die, you were going to hallucinate, you were going to this and that and the other. It's interesting to know that it was propaganda from the wine industry. It was. What people really need to understand is that Absinthe was made legal in 2007 because modern science proved that it is perfectly safe to drink. Wormwood distilled doesn't create what are called the thujones. The thujones is what is understood as as dangerous to ingest. Thujones, if you throw a little sage into your Thanksgiving dressing, you're going to have thujones. Have you ever heard anyone being worried about tripping from your Thanksgiving dressing? No, I have not. (laughs) Unless it's seriously like, I can't handle the family. I'm going to take something else. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm lacing the dressing. (laughs) I tell people, if you want a trip, absence not the best choice. The alcohol will kill you long before anything else does. And again, Wormwood absinthe is, it's similar to to gin. It's just a distilled spirit with, with botanicals. We've talked a lot about some of the struggles that, you know, you've had getting into this industry. First of all, it was illegal, finally legal, but I don't even want to say struggles, just the journey that you've had to get into the industry, but obviously a big change for your life, for your career. What kind of advice might you give someone who's considering a career change or a life change? The first thing that pops into my mind is money. 
it takes a long time for a business like this to turn a profit. Mm -hmm. And I have, I'm very lucky that I have investments that that can help me pay the rent. Not much more than that, but I have enough to live on so that I can not stress about money while I'm launching the business. And this kind of a business, I need everything produced before I can make sales. I need right. to pay my suppliers for glass, for ingredients, for freight. I'm everything down the line, the whole chain that gets paid before my products are even produced and on the shelves. So it's not like you can say, I'll pay you back later once we make some sales. I, I wish. <laughs> no, you can't. So yeah, so my advice would be to have savings or some type of income on a regular basis so that the stress of paying your bills and living does not interfere with your focus on the business. Yeah, and obviously... I made a joke before about how passionate you are. You've taken up the nickname, all the rest. But you must have to have such a huge passion, too, because if you're not bringing home a paycheck, like you said, you could have gone into alcohol law and had a huge paycheck. I don't have a plan B. This is it. And that's intentional. I have an exit strategy and I will achieve it. And there's no other option for me. And that's, I think, the best way to just keep going to inspire myself to get up in the morning and do what I need to do. Some days it's really hard. Some days it's really fun. But you have to have that passion and you have to have a lack of concern about how are you going to pay your rent in order to get up in the morning. The Green Fairy Podcast. Green Fairy yes. Tales. Green Fairy, Green Fairy Tales. Tales. When are we going to when are we going to see this? Hear this? Hopefully soon. We have been researching episode two for about six weeks. So we have an introduction and a first episode recorded. They're really fun. I'm doing it with my friend Athea Meredith, who is a degreed research librarian. And she's one of my oldest and dearest friends, also a photographer, has written blog articles for me, has done a lot of research for me, has come to events with me, and now knows about as much about Absinthe as I do. So it's been really fun. And we're hoping to have the first season recorded before we launch so that episodes like episode two that are taking an incredibly long time to research. When I talk about research, I mean, translating documents from a museum outside of Paris and comparing that with books written about absinthe. And one of the things that we're really having fun right now researching is who discovered absinthe? How was it created? And everybody says something different. There's a Dr. Pierre Ordinaire and there's the Henriade sisters. And so it's this feminist research project. Was it a man? Was it these women? What mm -hmm. does it mean if it was created by women? What does it mean if it was created by a man? And what's the real story? I love that because I feel like I often think this with food or with drinks, but what made you pick that thing and think, what if we made alcohol with it? Or 
what if we eat that thing in that weird spiky shell or whatever it is? How did they know to roast coffee beans? Yes. That is one of the ones that I go, who decided to do that and why? It's fascinating. So that just sounds right up my street. I'm very much looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to getting it out there too. We're also planning on doing a a Patreon and having special episodes for the Patreon subscribers where we will be interviewing people. I've got interviews so far from Brian Robinson, who owns the Wormwood Society, which has been an incredible resource for me, and a woman who launched a a lounge called the Bella Pock inside the old Absinthe House in New Orleans. That sounds so, so glamorous. Yeah, yeah. It was beautiful. It didn't last long, but it was absolutely gorgeous. And she's got just interesting stories. So there will be the regular Green Fairy Tales with Athea and I, and then the, the special interviews through our Patreon. I have two more questions for you that I have to know. One is, here I am in London. I'm getting my appetite wet for Absinthe. And all these cocktails. When are you coming to us? How are you going to get here? (laughs) Oh, I really want to. The UK never outlawed absinthe. I don't know if you know this. It was a French problem. There's a lot to unpack there. And we will absolutely do an episode on where was it legal? Where was it illegal? And all of that. So when absinthe started becoming popular again, London was actually one of the first places where you could drink absinthe because they didn't have to worry about any legalization. The hard part with selling in the UK and the EU is freight. Matter of getting it there. It is, shipping is so damn expensive. I did not know how much I liked California Reds until I moved here because a California Red, you can get like decent California Reds really cheap in the States. And then I moved here and I was like, oh, it's so precious. (laughs) (laughs) For the same reason, obviously. So I've actually entered the London Spirits competition a couple of times. They have not given me a gold medal yet, but I've received silvers. And just recently, the my new barrel-aged absinthe got a bronze medal from the London Spirits competition, simply because I want the attention of that audience. And I want someone magically to review who's won, look at it, and say, oh, that absinthe in California keeps winning awards in London. I'm going to import it and distribute it. We don't know who's listening. So listen up, people. (laughs) (laughs) Please. You never know who knows who. And that is actually one of my, I have two founding, I have two principles in the business. One is that I'll pretty much talk to anyone because you never know who knows who, who knows what little nugget you're going to get from the conversation. I mean, of course, I don't feel quite as special anymore. But other than that, that's a good, that's a good shout other than that. Don't get me wrong, a podcast that focuses on women and our struggles. Of course, I was going to talk to you, Kristen. (laughs) Thank you. I feel better. (laughs) The other principle is that I want to be someone that people enjoy working with. And that has really been helpful, not only for my career, but also my personal life. Mm. It's definitely carried through and it's, it's helped in business. It's made me a more empathetic, person. It slowed me down. It's hard to be kind and understanding in business when you're in fifth gear going 100 miles an hour. I do think most people think I started a business. I got crazy busy and I'm so stressed or the stereotypical businessman who just isn't considered a nice person. 
So the idea of I took on this business, all kinds of money stresses and things that could come along with it, but instead it's made me a better person. Right. Give a big thumbs up to that one. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. It's really nice building relationships with so many people. They're helping me. Yes, I'm paying them, but they're helping my business. And even when things end, for example, that first distiller, it was a very amicable parting. When Jared, my business partner in the syrups business, went back to bartending full time, we're still friends. It was a very amicable parting. And so I really try to avoid those personality challenges. Yeah, we don't need that kind of drama, really. Life's hard enough. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I do like to think the things I do, this is a great example because I feel like I'm really lucky that I get to talk to people and it's part of what I do. And then I get to make friends and acquaintances and connections around the world. No reason to burn bridges and just be a nice person. That's my, just put it on the wall. Be a nice person. The be end. a nice person. <laughs> yes. It, it, you don't have to be that ruthless businessman. You don't have to be, how was I, I heard it described recently where a man will go into business and be that empathy free person who can just put a sword into someone else on the battlefield and move on. Right. There is a different way to do it. And I prefer having good working relationships with people. I prefer collaborating. I prefer us working together. And I think that's a very female way of working. I think having more women in business and politics and all the rest will eventually be the thing that changes the world. But I'm sure nobody is surprised to hear me say that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Same. Last but not least, did you bring a quote for me today? I did. Where'd my glasses go? Also fab glasses, green headphones, fabulous green glasses, green fingernails. (laughs) Green eyes. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. You were born for this. Uh, So I have two quotes, if that's all right. Absolutely. The first is by Drew Barrymore. And she says, that's the kind of world I want to live in, where we're not holding our own principles and judgment above someone or against someone. The other quote is Ariana Huffington. She says, I don't like the idea of a thick skin. I think we can be more childlike. Children get upset and cry and it's over. Six seconds later, it's like nothing happened. That's my aspiration. Interestingly, I think that kind of, they both fit into what we were just saying. I I think they do too. I really love the thick skin one that like, why do we have to have a thick skin? Why can't we emote, get things out in the open and move on? Exactly. I love a good cry. Because I always feel better. I love a punching bag, as we've discovered. We both talked about punching bags or kicking things or what have you. And I'd love a good cry. Yeah. And as someone who has lost someone that I needed, allowing myself those few months to really just sit on the couch and cry and grieve and feel my pain and then pick myself up and get out the door and do what I needed to do, get an MBA, you have to allow yourself to feel your feelings. Otherwise, everyone told me, my therapist told me, you're going to be playing whack-a-mole the rest of your life. It's going to keep popping up and it's going to be impossible for you to get through the day when it does. But if you deal with your emotions right off the bat, it will just be easier later on. And, uh, And not to take away any credit from Drew Barrymore, because also Drew Barrymore, 
Who would have guessed? She's just always coming up with something really, I don't know. She's so savvy and like thinks she's she's really cool. Yeah. She's so savvy and cool. I would love to meet her. I actually do think we would be friends. I think so too. I think she could probably be friends with anyone. (laughs) She seems like that kind of woman. But yes, to not hold your own principles and judgment above someone or against someone. I think is just such a beautiful way of expressing that we each have our own principles that doesn't make anyone better than anyone else. We're all human. We're all just trying to survive and get by. I don't think life is easy for anyone. And I think we need to learn to understand and accept people for who they are. And I think that goes back to being someone that people enjoy doing business with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people and someone that people enjoy just being around in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's not to say you can't have your bad days. It goes back to the Ariana Huffington. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have days where you're stressed out and you just can't get there. You cannot keep that ideal of being a nice person or treating other people. You know what? You go off, you feel your feelings, you have that good cry, you punch that punching bag and you get back to it. I just want to thank you so much for coming on, Absinthia. It has been so fun. Thank you, Kristen. And we look forward to to that listener who is going to hook you up with some distribution here. (laughs) Oh, yes, please. (laughs) Call me. (laughs) Perfect. And we'll put all your links into the show notes so that they can. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told, and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.